Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week we'll discuss how covers, for better or worse, have helped to shape rock music. You have to find something in the song that you love, make it your own, but also be irreverent enough to throw away parts of the original and reinvent them. Plus, we'll share some of our favorite covers, review a new album from First Aid Kit, and remember Mark E. Smith of The Fall. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions. Later in the show, Jim and I are going to share some of our favorite covers, review the latest from Swedish folk duo First Aid Kit. And Jim's going to share a remembrance of Mark E. Smith of The Fall. That's all coming up. But first, Ray Paget is a music writer and publicist who's run the Cover Me blog since 2007. The blog highlights a wide variety of notable cover songs spanning genres, from soul to punk and everything in between. He's just written a book on the same theme called Cover Me, the stories behind the greatest cover songs of all time. Welcome to the show, Ray. Thanks for having me. Ray, where does the term cover come from? The term cover came around in the late 40s. The idea basically, it was an industry thing where record labels would try to have their own version of a big hit. So if Frank Sinatra or whoever has some massive hit, every record label would try to release a sound-alike version, the opposite of what we think of as a cover today where you make it your own. This is the opposite. They want it to sound exactly the same. And the idea was literally to cover the original record up in a store shelf. Mm. Maybe Frank Sinatra is not a great example, but people back then maybe didn't know who sang every single song they heard on the radio, they just knew the name of the song. So, you know, Mood Indigo. They'd say, I want, a, I want to buy Mood Indigo. And the record label clerk would just grab whatever version of Mood Indigo was, was sitting there. Fun fact I learned researching the book is that the Woolworths department store chain had its own record label, the entire purpose of which was to rip off hit songs um, and put them in their record stores so they made more money rather than selling the original. Oh, that's Ooh, insidious. That's evil. Wake up, little Susie, and weep. The movie's over, it's four o'clock, and we're in trouble deep. Wake up, little Susie. Wake up, little Susie. Well, what are we gonna tell your mama? What are we gonna tell your father? We want to dig deep into some of the stories that you tell, which are fascinating, behind some of the best-known covers, I think, in rock history. But before we get there... Give us some philosophy, man. What makes a great cover song? That's a great question. And I'll answer that first by answering the reverse. What makes a bad cover song? Because you constantly see lists of like the worst cover songs ever, and it's, you know, Madonna doing American Pie. Bye, bye, 
Oh, that's bad, yeah. It's, ba- it's <laughs> bad, but I would argue that the worst cover song is a tie between every cover song that doesn't change anything from the original. Mm. Which, to answer your question, so that's the first step in a good cover song, is you have to make it your own. You can't just slavishly record, you know, exactly how the Rolling Stones or whoever did it, because what's the point in that? You have to find something in the song that you love, make it your own, but also be irreverent enough to throw away parts of the original and reinvent them. I don't know if I agree with that. Okay. Um, certainly, it. we've all endured innumerable bad cover bands, right? Oh, yes. But I, I had a friend who's a rock academic at DePaul University, and she says one of the things that's happening when a band is covering uh, a song that you love on stage is you're hearing the real band in your head. Mm-hmm. And maybe you're not at the empty bottle seeing the Rolling Stones, right? But I'll, I'll also throw at you the feelies who are, you know, one of, I think, the most inventive bands in rock in the last 30 years, and they're famous for covering songs. And they're always very faithful, but it illuminates their whole aesthetic by showing where they got bits and pieces of it. I see a rental and I want to paint it black. No colors anymore, I want them to be black. I see the girls walk by dressed in their summer clothes. See, I wouldn't call them faithful. I agree with you that they're, and bands like them are, you know, copying certain parts of the original. But I feel like if you're feeling it enough, if you're making it your own, another, you know, sort of famous example would be Joan Jett's uh, I Love Rock and Roll. Sure. Huge song, very famous. And if you And nobody knew the original. And if you you A-B it to the Arrow's obscure original, it's basically the same. The drum parts are the same. The guitar parts are the same. Shame. I knew she must have been about 17. Mm. The beat was going strong, playing my favorite song. And I could tell it wouldn't be long till she was with me, yeah, me. And I could tell it wouldn't be long till she was with me, yeah, me. But if you bring a certain passion, a certain dedication, you know, I think that is making it your own, and I think the feelies are a good example of that. We're talking to Ray Paget, the author of Cover Me, the uh, stories behind the greatest cover songs of all time. Kick off your book with Elvis Presley uh, covering Hound Dog. Why'd you, why'd you lead off the book with that? Why that particular song? Because I think it sort of marks a transition point in the history of, of the cover song, and that's what I'm trying to tell throughout the book. Before, you know, the argument is, Everything was a cover song sort of before the dawn of rock and roll, or most things. The job title of singer-slash-songwriter didn't really exist in the same way. If you were a singer, you were singing songs that other people had written and often previously recorded. I mean, you could even call every orchestra that performs a Mozart song a cover by some stretch. But Elvis, you know, it's sort of—he never, you know, wrote any of his own songs— and so he's right at the tail end of that tradition, but he's inaugurating a tradition that you know follows through to the Beatles and every rock and roll band since, where it soon became a premium to write your own songs. And Elvis, I thought, was an interesting case study of Hound Dog specifically, because that's a song you know that's he took from an African American singer, Big Mama Thornton, who had had sort of a what at the time were termed race hit, which um, means you know a segregated hit with it. You ain't nothing but a hound. 
sort of reinvented it, you know, made it about a literal dog uh, for, you know, the sort of broader market. And then <laughs> it so it ties into an issue the cover songs have had throughout their history, including way back to Elvis, which is, you know, appropriation. Basically. Well, it's a history of rock and roll, isn't it? It's yeah. white artists covering uh, black R&B and performers, gospel performers in some cases, and, and making it their own and selling it to a broader audience. And, you know, hence the idea of appropriation and, you know, cultural colonialism. In your opinion, is he transforming that song? Is he making it better? What's your focus on that song and the way Elvis sings it versus Big Mama Thornton's original? Well, he's definitely transforming it. Um, I mean, I think Big Mama Thornton's original is fantastic. It's sort of a rough blues number um, that, I, that I think is great. It didn't need to be fixed or improved. What Elvis does is he sort of makes it almost a novelty song, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but he makes it about a dog, first of all, a literal, you know, crying all the time, um, hound dog, and he just sort of hams it up. It's very upbeat. It's danceable. You know, this is the song where he's shaking his hips on Ed Sullivan, mm-hmm. causing so much controversy. So he totally reinvents it. Um, but I think, like you know, it's a great cover in the sense that they can both coexist. Lieber and Stoller had a funny quote. They wrote the original song, and they said Elvis's lyrics don't make any sense. He's singing about a dog, but it's a you know a low down dog. But then they would later add, "We hated Elvis's cover." Dot 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 until the checks started coming in. Yeah. <laughs> Right, 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 right. Um, Ray, tell us, how did Elvis discover Hound Dog? Then this is another complicating factor in this sort of racial appropriation narrative is that Elvis may or may not have actually heard Big Mama Thornton's original. He took his interpretation, his version about the dog, um, from this basically Vegas lounge act, and they it was a novelty number for them at the end of the show, you know, um, dance moves, fancy suits, you know, yucking it up. Elvis was on a Vegas concert of his own. He went and he saw them. He loved it. And so all the lines that Lieber and Stoller were complaining about as being Elvis lines about dogs were actually Freddie Bell lines, but Freddie <laughs> Bell never had success with it. You ain't nothing but a hound dog, a hound dog. Why is it uh, this iconic song? I mean, it, it's still, you know, you mentioned Hound Dog. People in, always associated with Elvis unless they really know their stuff. Yeah. It's, it's really considered like this ground zero for rock and roll in many ways and associated with a white artist who's ripping it off from a lounge singer yeah, who in really... turn ripped it off from the originator. I, I think it stands out in, uh, in your book, Ray, uh, as, as one of the only songs that... that... I think a lot of listeners would would not even realize it was a cover. Yeah. You know, the others all all stand as, you know, original is as big as the cover. But this one, Elvis took. Yeah, he took it. And it's, yeah, I agree. It's much bigger. Um, And I think, I mean, I think it embodies so much of what made Elvis both great and, you know, hugely popular, which is the energy, the attitude, the swagger. Um, You know, it's a tight song, you know, two and a half minutes. It just sort of uh, races through. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, in a way, it's a shame when a cover so eclipses the original that the original gets forgotten in the narrative of music history. I mean, I, I, like I say, I think people should listen to Big Mama Thornton's. I think it has a lot to offer. But, you know, Elvis, especially at the time, was such sort of an all-consuming force that if he did a song, it became an Elvis song, no mm-hmm. matter what it was beforehand. What did Mama Thornton think about it? Did, you, did, you get, did your research point you in any direction in that regard? She wasn't thrilled um, for the simple reason that she hadn't written the original song, which means she didn't make any money off of Elvis's version. <laughs> right. If you write the original song, you make royalties off of anyone who covers it. But if you performed the original song, you don't get anything. And so she was she was kind of pissed about it, frankly. Um, he has this huge hit. He doesn't credit her specifically. Again, he may, who knows how aware he even was of, of her version. And so she doesn't get a lot out of it. I think um, that's a great point that you just made. I think uh, a lot of songwriters are happy to have their songs covered because obviously it means more money in their bank account, especially if the song does well. Uh, But there have been instances of songwriters who have dissed cover versions of songs, even though they have sold scads of copies. It was almost like a condescending... This artist wasn't worthy of that song. You know, I can't believe they butchered it. Uh, they cashed the checks, but they make right. that complaint. They exactly. They complain that loudly. Yeah, but I, I do remember, like, especially around the punk new wave era when, when, for example, some of Elvis Costello's songs were being covered. Because I don't know if you are loving somebody. I only know it isn't mine. Uh, he would cast aspersions at some of these artists who were coming. I think Linda Ronstadt was, you know, got in his sights once uh, for for a cover of one of his songs. Prince hated covers of his songs. Yeah. Um, like that's how sort of I open my book is he's trashing the art of the cover song basically saying don't cover any of my songs which is of course ironic because any number of Prince songs were hits from covers from Cindy Lauper When You Were Mine to Sinead O'Connor Nothing Compares to You Nothing compares Nothing compares Right. There have been a million hit Prince covers, um, but, you know, he was always sort of contrary, and so he hated people covering his songs. And then you've got an artist like Bob Dylan who, you know, uh, the basement tapes are essentially, those songs were all written with the idea that somebody else would perform them. They were never intended to be released. They were, they were basically songs that were, you know, here's a demo, record my song, please, make it a hit, and I'll gladly collect the income. Yeah, he made it a business model where he recorded these demos. His manager would farm them out. And so many famous Dylan songs, for instance, the mighty Quinn, you know, Quinn the Eskimo, were released by the cover version, Manfred Madden in that case, before Dylan's version ever came out. I mean, 
Dylan's an interesting case. He's the only artist in the book that gets two chapters about covers of his song. You've got Adele doing him and, and of course, uh, Hendrix. Because he's so pivotal in in the cover world, because he's someone who writes these great songs, but his actual recordings of them are, shall we say, not mass appeal. He's not having number one hits with his own recordings, but when people with a more commercially palatable voice do them, then they become number one hits. It does confuse me, Ray, to some extent. Um, you know, I think uh, modern musicians are well aware that sample at your own risk because you can build a fantastic track out of a sample but without getting the artist – I mean it's not going to come out uh, mm-hmm. on, on any sort of uh, legal form uh, without getting the artist's permission, right? Uh, but we can cover whatever we want as long as we're paying royalties. But there are several famous – Incidents throughout history of like, you know, a band in New York in the 80s, Das Damen covered Magical Mystery Tour at a point where Michael Jackson owned that part of the Beatles catalog and SST Records had to like take back everything that was in the stores and destroy them. As long as you don't change a word, you can cover whatever you want. You just have to pay the royalty. So in that case, either it could be they didn't, you know, go through the proper channels to pay the royalty or it could be if you change even a single word, all of a sudden... You need permission. And there's an example of that in the book, which is the Fugees doing Killing Me Softly. Um, They wanted to cover the song. They loved the song. They even went as far as recording it. But they had changed one line. They had changed the chorus from Killing Me Softly with a song to Killing the Sound Boy with his song. And Sound Boy was sort of a uh, Jamaican-influenced hip-hop you know, um, you could say wannabe. or It was a diss, basically. So, like, I'm going to kill him, you know... um, with how much better my song is. So they only changed those two words, killing me softly to killing the sound boy, but then they need to go get permission. And the original writers said, hell no. Mm-hmm. You can't record killing the sound boy. You have, if you record it, you have to do it the exact same way. So then they had to go back and re-record killing me softly. But I spoke to Praz for the book, and he basically said, thank God they said no, because otherwise no one knows what killing the sound boy meant. It would have stayed within a small hip-hop niche, and instead it became our biggest song. That has been a hit for both Roberta Flack, who was covering a country pop song, and she made it into this, you know, powerful soul song. And right. then 20 years later, the Fugees bring it into the realm of hip-hop with Lauryn Hill singing the song over basically a hip-hop beat that they took from Tribe Called Quest. I heard he sang a good song. I heard he had a style. And so I came to see And so you can say that's a song that even though the original version by Laurie Lieberman was not a hit. Killing me softly with his song, killing me softly with his song. It's such a good song that it just transcends and can be covered over and over and over again. In myriad styles. And each version stands on its own. With his song. Well, thank you so much. Ray Paget has been our guest on Sound Opinions talking about covers uh, in relation to his book, Cover Me. Thanks so much, Ray, for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. When we come back, Greg and I will share some of our favorite cover songs in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott here with Jim DeRogatis. We've been talking about notable cover songs, and uh, as we've been talking about, a cover in the right hands can really transform a song that you thought you knew, but uh, the cover brings new uh, textures to it that you may not have realized were there. You know, I'm thinking of something like Soft Cell's transformation of that Gloria Jones song, uh, Tainted Love, in the 80s. Uh, you know, we thought we'd share a few of our favorites, Jim. Uh, you're up first. You know, absolutely, Greg. Uh, transforming a song is one thing covers do. Another is making connections uh, of influences you might not have suspected in a band. I think a third thing is shining a spotlight on a song that you probably missed because it's so deep and obscure you would have never heard it. Uh, I'm going to do uh, two covers. Uh, the first uh, does number two and three of what I just talked about. I said in the interview with Ray that the Feelies had a unique way of bringing in all these different influences throughout the their history uh, to the songs that they covered. They also had numerous offshoot bands. They had one devoted entirely to covering the psychedelic Beatles, Dr. Robert, Mm -hmm. and another devoted to just Velvet Underground songs, Foggy Notion. Then there is the band where Dave Weckerman, the veteran percussionist, the guy who plays maracas and and second snare drum and tambourine, uh, steps forward and becomes the front person. It was called Young Woo. Um, They are reissuing a great album that came out in 1987, the only album they made uh, ever, uh, Shore Leave. Uh, It's out again. It's great to have it back. There's a wonderful cover on it. I was unaware of guitarist Phil Manzanera's first studio solo album, Diamond Head, until Young Woo, the feelies in disguise, introduced me to it by a cover. Manzanera in 1975, Moonlighting from Roxy Music, made a fantastic record uh, produced by, co-written songs by, vocals by... Brian Eno, thank you very much, okay? And even as big of an Eno head as I am, I didn't know the song Big Day. Here's a little bit of of, uh, Manzanera's version with Eno on vocals. So that is a great pop song, Big Day. Um, I think it's a little weak in the Manzanera version. Uh, The feelies beef it up with that classic feelies rhythm. Uh, Dave Weckerman on vocals in Young Woo, uh, you know, adds a new layer of sort of just, gee whiz, I'm a tourist Mm. in an exotic place. I'm in Peru. Straw hats, you know, and and, and, um, there's a great tradition, I think, in rock and roll of travelogue pop songs of places that the artists clearly have never been. You know, you think of something like uh, Istanbul, not Con. Constantinople, <laughs> right? Or, or even, I guess, you know, uh, Dylan's uh, 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 Quinn the Eskimo. Mm-hmm. I don't think he ever went, you know, to the Arctic. Uh, and, and so you're imagining this place you've never been. Big stars, India, right? And you're singing with such passion and fondness. You want to go. Young Woo, Dave Weckerman makes me want to go to Peru on Big Day. 
Covering Phil Manzanera and Brian Eno, Big Day. It's on the newly reissued Shore Leave record. Buy it if you love the feelies, if you love Eno. Mm-hmm. Jim, the song I want to highlight is a, is a classic from the 70s. Uh, we just talked about this artist uh, a few weeks ago on the show, Al Green. The Rev. Uh, and what a remarkable uh, decade he had in the 70s, that conflation of spirituality and sexuality in his songs and how he eventually converted to gospel music after this long period of kind of wrestling uh, with his feelings about those uh, two areas. Um, This song uh, encapsulates a lot of that internal struggle uh, that Al Green was going through, Take Me to the River. Mm. Uh, It it surfaced in 1974, was co-written with his guitarist, uh, Teeny Hodges, who was part of that great high rhythm uh, uh, section uh, that he recorded many of those classic songs with. And, you know, this is a typical Al scenario here. You've got this idea of of a baptism going on, but it's conflated with this idea of this really lusty affair that he's having Mm. that isn't going really well. So Al is very, there's a lot of anxiety in this song, you know, this mix of spirituality and carnality uh, that he was struggling with at the time, really coming to the fore, these images of, of taking me to the river and being baptized in the river and at the same time somehow being healed or lifted up uh, in in this love affair that isn't going very well. Um, You know, Al Green, uh, there's no one better at at, at sort of struggling with those notions. Here's a little bit of Al Green's original version of Take Me to the River. Now, that song struck a chord with a lot of artists. Um, among the people who covered that song within the first uh, couple of years after it was released were, among others, the the, uh, the mighty fog hat attempted a cover <laughs> of Take Me to the River. And part, I, I have never heard that. And the perverse side of me was tempted to play that version of it, but I, I don't think it's particularly good. Uh, also, artists like Levon Helm covered it mm. uh, on one of his solo records. Brian Ferry of Roxy Music, another uh, Roxy Music uh, solo spinoff uh, along the lines of the Phil Manzanera track that you just played. And those are fine versions, but I think the best one was the one uh, done by uh, Talking Heads in 1978. And the reason I'm focusing on that is that it's so revelatory because I think 
the, the talking heads coming out of that punk and post-punk scene, which was uh, very white, let's put it that way, um, certainly not a lot of soul or funk associations in that music or even danceability in a lot of that music. But mm. the talking heads were always focused on that side of it. Let's get people on the dance floor. Let's get them dancing. And they didn't quite get there with their first couple of records, but near the tail end of their second record, um, here comes this track, Take Me to the River, and it's a revelation to everybody. Like, what a great song. Oh, that's that Al Green soul funk song. Yeah. What, what, is a, what is an uptight white band like the, <laughs> the Talking Heads doing covering this and doing a pretty good job of it? Um, this would lead into a very, a very a fertile period of, of Talking Heads music where they, they go full on into the funk uh, with Re- Remain in Light, one of their subsequent records. And, of course, you see a lot of that manifested in that terrific movie, uh, Stop Making Sense that yep. came out in 1984. But six years early, this was kind of like the starting point for me. The incorporation of those funk and R&B grooves into punk in this cover of Al Green's Take Me to the River by Talking Heads. That's Talking Heads from 1978, their cover of Al Green's Immortal, Take Me to the River. Jim, you've got another cover for us. I do, Greg. Continuing with the notion of great songs that may have been missed in their original context, John Lennon and Yoko Ono put out a series of three to call them experimental albums is kind. Uh, unlistenable might be more realistic. Let's face it, genius or no, both of them, uh, there was a lot of dreck. Unfinished Music number 1, two versions. Unfinished Music 2, Life with the Lions, and Wedding Album, possibly the worst of those three records. Right? Mm. We're just talking like Primal Scream, you know, messing around in, in, in bed noise, as all <laughs> these records were. And then in the midst of that final experimental record is this wonderful song called Listen, the Snow is Falling that Yoko wrote and recorded uh, with John Lennon and Phil Spector helping her produce it. It is a beautiful, stunning pop song uh, in the midst of unlistenable noise, I would say, um, that's easily overlooked. Listen, the snow is falling Oh, the 
Now, Yoko's vocals are are hard to take. Mm. Um, uh, she's arguably better when she's screaming and yelping and primal screaming. Um, you know, but but you can tell that's a good song. How good a song it was uh, was brought home to me when Galaxy 500 covered it on the last of their three albums. This is our music. Uh, you and I are both huge fans of Galaxy 500. We've had Dean Wareham on the show and Damon Krakowski with his his partner Naomi Yang. I, I think I heard the song before the album was actually out on Rough Trade. I remember standing on one of those horrifyingly minus 25 outside winter evenings in Minneapolis at 7th Street Entry mm. and seeing Naomi take over from Dean on vocals to deliver this young Yoko Ono song. And I, and I didn't have any idea that it was a Yoko Ono song. Right. Damon's drumming is so sympathetic. Naomi's vocals are beautiful. And the way Dean uh, propels her with the guitar solo, with the it's just incredible. Listen, The Snow is Falling by Galaxy 500. Galaxy 500 covering Yoko Ono. Listen, the snow is falling. Greg, you got one more great cover to share with us. I do. I want to focus on Dolly Parton's classic 1973 song, Jolene. Um, one of Dolly's greatest hits, without a doubt. Uh, the, the, the setup for the song is basically this this woman, uh, this redheaded woman named Jolene, who is enticing her man away from her, seducing her man. And and the narrator in the song fears the worst. Mm. Jolene, I can't compete with you. You're clearly more beautiful than I am, more seductive than I am. Uh, you know, I feel incredibly inadequate next to you. You're going to steal my man. Please don't steal my man. Wow. Uh, there's a melancholy and a regret and a forlorn attitude in this song. It's not like she's condemning Jolene so much as saying, I can't compete with you. Please Please go away quietly so that I can I can stay with my man. It is a unique song. You don't yeah. often hear that conversation between two women in a song mm-hmm. in pop history. Yeah, and uh, you know, it, uh, Dolly said that the song was inspired by two things that happened in her in her life. Uh, there was an eight-year-old girl who came up uh, and asked her for an autograph. This red-headed eight-year-old girl, and she asked her her name, Jolene. She goes, "My, that would be a great name for a song." <laughs> you know, it kind of reminded her of like you know, 
classic J woman names. And Jezebel was another mm. one that sort of pops in your head. Like, it's an evocative name. And then uh, her husband, apparently, uh, there was a redheaded bank teller oh. that her husband seemed to be very fond of. And the bank teller seemed very fond of, of, of uh, her husband. And she was jealous. And they were sort of uh, joking around. You're spending a lot of time at that bank. I don't believe we've, <laughs> we've got that kind of money, you know, that yeah, kind yeah. of thing. So um, it, it partially a joke. She said, you know, there was no affair. But it was just more what was going on in her head, her imagination as a songwriter. So she writes this incredibly melancholy, incredibly beautiful uh, song called Jolene. Jolene, 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 Jolene I'm begging of you, please don't take my man Jolene, 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 Jolene Please don't take him just because you Beyond compare with flaming locks of auburn hair with ivory skin and eyes of emerald green. Your smile is like a breath of spring, your voice is soft like summer rain. So, uh, this song has been covered many, many times. It's considered one of uh, Dolly's classics, and uh, I think one of the most notable versions was a latter-day version of this song done by the White Stripes. Jack White, a big fan of, uh, you know, vintage country and blues. And uh, he uh, originally recorded the song as a B-side for the Hello Operator 7-inch. And then I think where the song really blossomed for Jack White and the White Stripes was in concert. And that's that's the version I want to play. There's an official video of a concert performance of this song in which I, the reasons for my focusing on this cover uh, become clear. Um, first of all, there's the desperation, the wrenching performance, whereas Dolly sounded a little forlorn and melancholy. You can see that White is, his narrator is really tortured but there's a by this happening. Yeah. yeah. And the other part is the little twist he gives to the relationships in this song. The guy is now begging his lover, Jolene, to stop cheating on him with one of his friends. So without changing the gender, he still is able to personalize the song in a way that made it very real for him. So uh, a transformative cover of a great song by the White Stripes, Jolene, on Sound Opinions. choice for a great cover, Greg Cott, Jolene by the White Stripes. As always, we want to hear from you. What is your favorite cover song, or what's a cover song you love to hate? Call and leave us a message at 888-859-1800. Coming up next, we'll review the new record from the Swedish duo First Aid Kit and remember Mark E. Smith, the frontman for The Fall. 
That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis. That's a track from the new First Aid Kit album, Ruins. It's called Rebel Heart. First Aid Kit is basically a duo just outside of uh, Stockholm in Sweden. Sisters, Clara and Joanna Soderberg. Their first album came out in 2008. They had a breakthrough album in 2014 with Stay Gold, followed by what they described as a never-ending tour. They'd basically been on the road for six years. They got sick of their music. Uh, They got sick of each other. They took a break, and uh, Clara, the younger sister, uh, eventually moved out of Sweden to live with her then-fiancé in Manchester, England. That relationship broke up and led to the songs that uh, uh, they crafted for this particular album, a heavy breakup-themed record. It was recorded in Portland with producer Tucker Martin, who has worked with artists like Nico Case, The Decembrists, My Morning Jacket. Here's a track from the new record. It's called It's a Shame from First Aid Kit on Sound Opinions. It's a shame by First Aid Kit from the album Ruins. The way these two women harmonize is absolutely stunningly, breathtakingly beautiful. Um, you know, that cliche of they could sing the phone book and it's great. Well, it, it's it's not quite true. There are moments of tweeness on this record, mainly when that all-star backing band and Tucker Martin, the producer, kind of pull back. Um, to live a life doesn't do much for me. Well, I'm just like my mother. We both love to run, chase impossible things, unreachable dreams. Lie awake in the night, thinking this can't be right, but there is no other way to live a life. I like, actually, the most produced songs. I think Hem of Her Dress <laughs> does this weird thing where it becomes partly like orchestral pop tinder sticks and pop partly like drunken pogues uh, mm. sing-along in the music hall with horns in back, and you wouldn't expect the Soderbergh sisters to be doing their thing on top of it, and, and yet they do, and it's wonderful. <laughs> ¶¶ 
it is not a consistently beginning to end uh, fantastic album. There are some very, very good moments. Uh, like I said, I like it most. Uh, another point of comparison would be almost they're doing an Elephant Six sort of thing, Neutral Milk Hotel mm-hmm. or Olivia Tremor Control, those psychedelic orchestral pop bands of the late 90s. Uh, I, I like it when they're most ambitious. About half the album is in that mold. So it's half of a great record. It's a try-it record for me. Yeah, Jim, I would generally agree with what you're saying. I, I think, uh, again, the strength of the group is those Laurel Canyon pop harmonies. You know, they're students of this particular era of, of music, uh, 60s, 70s. They love those classic soft rock sounds, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the oxymoron soft rock. But that's kind of the template they've been working with for years. And they're undeniably great sounding uh, vocalists. What I was intrigued by... First of all, when I saw them cover Black Sabbath's War Pigs on their 2015 <laughs> tour, and they did it pretty, you think, well, that's going to sound ridiculous. They actually pulled it off and did a nice, really good job of Again, it. Again, with the strength of a cover, yeah. Yeah. And then, earlier in, in 2017, uh, on the day of the International Women's March, they released a song called You Are the Problem Here that is one of the toughest, most intense, most explicit songs they've ever written. It became an anthem for the, the Me Too era. I am so sick and tired of this world All these women with their dreams shattered From some man's sweaty, desperate touch I've had enough not on this album. It's not on this album. And ditto for anything that sounds like the War Pigs cover. Right. I, you know, so there's a toughness that these women have. Uh, that I don't think is fully in evidence. I would love to have seen them even expand that sound further. Some of these experiments that you were talking about where they included a track or two uh, like that. Now, I know that the You Are the Problem Here song was a charity single, but I would have loved you know, to see that tagged on mm-hmm. at the end as maybe mm-hmm. a bonus track so that people could hear another side of what First Aid can, can do. Uh, good record, not a great record. It's a, it's a try it for me as well. That is a little bit, Greg, of Totally Wired, a 1981 song by The Fall. Mark E. Smith, the uh, only consistent member of that band, died at the age of 60 recently at home in England. An extraordinary 32-album mm-hmm. discography. Studio records. There's another some 30 records, live albums. Who were The Fall? This is a hard band to get your head around. Formed after an inspiring show by the Sex Pistols in Manchester in 76, post-punk, mm-hmm. in the sense that they gave up that uh, punk love of songcraft and just focused on this grinding assault with Smith's caustic lyrics. You know, he considered himself, Greg, a, a postmodern literary guy. His heroes were Aldous Huxley and Kurt Vonnegut and Albert Camus. The name of the band comes from Camus. Like I said, 32 albums. My problem with The Fall 
while that driving minimalist aggression had its appeal and there were moments of melody, I think of something like the the cover in 86 of a garage rock nugget, Mr. Pharmacist. Mr. Pharmacist. Great stuff, or how I wrote Elastic Man. I could never recommend one single Fall album to a young listener who's curious. There's a good best of 50,000 Fall fans can't be wrong. Came out in 2004. Mm. It really is a band that I think was destined for mixtapes. You know, you pick and choose with so much of a catalog uh, and so much hit and miss in that catalog. And it was the same live. If he was particularly angry about something, he was beating up his band members on stage uh, or drunk and belligerent or just walking off. It was a hit and miss band. You know, Jim, I agree. Mercurial career doesn't even begin to do justice no, to no. Marky Smith. But I, I think there were accessible records in there. I, I am one of those perverse fall fans that owns just about every studio record they put out, in addition to a few live albums. And I agree, difficult artists at times. I saw great shows. I saw not so great shows. But I would say to a novice fall listener, uh, go right to This Nation's Saving Grace from the mid-'80s. I think the period when Brick Smith, his then-wife, was playing guitar in the band, uh, that brought out the, the band at its most accessible in, in many ways. A, a song like Cruiser's Creek, mm. I think, fits very well into the whole post-punk era. And then another great record from the early 90s, the infotainment scan, a song like Glam Racket. Glam Racket. Glam Racket. Don't try to cheat you. I'm fragile. There were moments where he said, okay, I'll give you these little nuggets yeah, of, yeah. of you know, entry points. I could do this if I wanted yes. to. In, in extended plays like those records, I think he, he achieved it. You mentioned the intentional difficulty. I think it was more about I will not be pinned down. Yeah. And I would also say that of all the post-punk vocalists, what man is more recognizable than he? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. is one of those things where you hear a fall song, like the first three notes, you, you know can tell right voice. away it's Marky Smith. Oh, don't get me wrong. I think you can make a great Spotify playlist, a great mixtape. I would I would go even to 50,000 fall fans can't be wrong. But for the sheer character and stubbornness and strength of vision over, you know, almost half a century, Marky Smith, dead at the age of 60, is going to be missed. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, in honor of Valentine's Day, we are going to play some of our favorite songs that say, I want you back. Greg, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, and Iona Contreras. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hi, this is David from Philadelphia. I was calling about your recent New Wave episode, but I had a problem with 
the way it was portrayed that New Wave was mainstream. Every time you listen to Laurie Majewski, it sounds like everyone in the 1980s was listening to New Wave artists. But the 1980s were about Bruce Springsteen, Michael Jackson, Madonna, Def Leppard, Guns N' Roses. That was mainstream. New Wave was decidedly on the fringe of mainstream, if at all. There were certainly the one-hit wonders that most people thought of, like AHA and even Durant and Tears for Fears. But those of us who were into New Wave, we were not part of the mainstream. We were the people who felt left out. We were the people who felt like the outsiders. I think that needs to be an important part of the story of New Wave in the 1980s. Thanks very much. Love your show. We'll always keep listening. Hi, this is Angie calling from Carborough, North Carolina. I want you to know that until listening to Sound Opinions today, I'd never even heard of Vic Mensa. Maybe I'm a little sheltered. It's such a refreshing thing to hear such a well-rounded young man talking about so many hard social issues a lot of us struggle with today. Thank you again for uh, having him on, and thank you, Vic Mensa, for being yourself and putting yourself out there for the world. One day I dream of telling my mama you ain't got to work no more. Same for my father, born in Ghana, down on that dirt road floor. Far as he came, I can't complain, but pain is so subjective. Spend so much time counting issues, I forget to count my blessings. Watch my cousins. Hi, my name's Jana. I'm calling from Westmont. I just listened to your interview with Dick Mensa, and I just want to thank you. I think it's an amazing interview. I love your show. And I love the fact that you treat rap and hip-hop with the same respect as you treat other, all other forms of music, other genres. Uh, I'm a newer hip-hop listener. I've always been kind of a rock chick. And it's something I consider a really important education. And Vic Mensa is definitely someone I'm going to be a fan of now. So thank you so much for that. Didn't I tell you we was going to make it to the top? Didn't I? Didn't I? Didn't I? Didn't I tell you this was a new birth of the rock group? Didn't I, didn't I say I didn't send you that money when you needed it cause your mind didn't I, didn't I say I didn't, didn't I take up the morning just to ride with you, yeah. Hi, my name is Peter. I'm calling from Berwyn, Illinois, and I'm super excited that you're going to be talking about cover songs because I've always been a huge fan of interesting covers. So I just wanted to give my opinion that one thing that makes a bad cover is when it's just an exact copy of the original. And I think the most egregious example of that is Tesla's cover of Signs, which somehow made it onto the chart, but was an almost note-for-note copy of the original. And the sign said, long-haired, freaky people need not apply.
complete waste of time, complete waste of energy, and complete waste of music. So, thanks and keep up the great work. Have a good day. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.